This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. I think we've got enough people to make a start anyway. So given that this is the first recorded uh, blockchain legal discussion that uh, that we've had, uh, second attempt, uh, I thought best of all, best approach would be to go around, uh, introduce, everyone can introduce themselves, and then we can outline what we each feel are the biggest uh, issues in uh, blockchain law or blockchain-related law today. If that suits everyone. So let's see. I'm just looking across. Okay, why don't we start with uh, why don't we start with yourself, uh, Alex? Oh, I'm Alex Sims. I uh, am an academic at University of Auckland, and I have an interest in various things with blockchain. At the moment, I'm doing a, a research project on the regulation of cryptocurrencies in New Zealand and Australia, um, and the pressing issues in New Zealand for um, uh, blockchain is actually the government's um, reluctance to engage, and we're a lot further behind than, say, Australia. Uh, Liesl. Can you hear me now? Yep. Hi, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I am Liesl Eichholz, um, student at the University of Otago, studying my Master's in Law and I'm focusing on the legal implications of blockchain technologies. Um, for me, I think the biggest sort of legal blockchain-related problem at the moment is sort of the conflict between needing to get some rules in place for the ball to get rolling, but at the same time wanting it to not be too restrictive and trying to keep our options as open as possible. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Hannah Glass. I'm a solicitor at King & Wood Mallet. <laughs> Sydney. Um, I actually started back in the blockchain space when it was still Bitcoin. And in Australia, it's kind of amazing because we started off looking at the Bitcoin issues of uh, treatment of whether or not it's a currency, the tax issues associated with that, anti-money laundering. And all of these things, we've sort of gotten to a stage now where we're working with the regulators to sort through them, um, which is pretty amazing. But because we're now in kind of getting to this crypto 2.0 um, with blockchain technology more broadly, we're finding that the real issues are working through how we can make sure that blockchains work within the law and that the systems that are put in place take it take account and are able to work with the current legal framework. So whether that's a smart contract, working out how that fits in with contractual law, whether it's um, a clearing and settlement system, how that would work with those, those rules and regulations, both on a national and international basis. Uh, so Matt Corva, um, I heard someone describe me today as the legal team at Consensus, which I guess is factually accurate. Um, I am most interested in um, corralling developers who are themselves most interested in pushing the limits of what is legally possible with blockchain technology, um, particularly interested in um, mainstream use cases, adoption, and actual real-life um, enforceable contracts on blockchain. And Peter. 
So I'm uh, Peter Van Valkenburg. I'm director of research at Coin Center, which is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., that tries to educate policymakers about these technologies. Uh, we've been involved in this stuff since back when it was Bitcoin, not blockchain as well. And I like to think it still is Bitcoin um, or Ethereum. It still is a token that has value and usually powers and creates the incentives on these networks. I'm not particularly interested in policy related to closed or permissioned or identified blockchain networks. I'm interested in open platforms that are you know, permissionless and available to anyone to use and develop on. So things like Ethereum, Zcash, Bitcoin still. And the policy issues there will still often relate to the same policy issues we saw, I think, with Bitcoin in the early days, which is if you have an application that's dealing with or custodying some amount of valuables, and if that is a currency or uh, something of monetary value, then that implicates all sorts of regulations here in the US. For example, consumer protection laws, we require that businesses holding other people's valuables license at the state level. Uh, you can't do that business without getting a license from 53 states and territories. We require that you do anti-money laundering compliance, uh, spy on your users basically uh, here in the US and suspicious activity reporting to the government. Um, it's an open question which entities in these spaces need to do that, whether they're just the people holding other people's cryptocurrency or tokens for them or whether it's the software designers themselves on some level. And then the biggest confusing thing and interesting thing for me with regards to the new wave of token sales and things has to do with securities regulation because in many cases the selling of a you know of a token whether it's an ethereum based token or a brand new cryptocurrency network where you're going to do a pre-sale at a pre-mine could uh, give rise to questions about whether what you did was an investment contract under u.s securities laws and whether you were supposed to register with the sec and file a prospectus and all the sorts of things we normally expect from people who have IPOs. And that doesn't help that we're calling these things ICOs more and more often. Uh, and then there's also questions of financial surveillance and anti-money laundering with regard to token sales as well, if what you're doing is actually serving as a money services business when you sell those tokens. And that's a frightening possibility because there aren't too many token sales that do KYC for their buyers. Okay, and I'm Arthur Falls, host of the Ether Review, uh, Director of Media at Consensus. And I think that there's not enough blockchain law-related uh, media in, out there. So hopefully we're going to rectify that situation starting today. So now we've talked about uh, regulation, identity. Um, we've talked about blockchain standards. Um, what do you guys want to discuss today or feel like we haven't really uh, got our head around um, in, in, recent, uh, in recent discussions? And, and what do you guys feel is pressing? Or is there uh, something that's happened recently in, uh, in you know, some, some recent event that you guys feel is worth talking about? So if no one volunteers, I, I have a subject, but it, it might be a bit of a rabbit hole, but it, it's one of personal experience recently in terms of what we're seeing in cryptocurrency and blockchain. So if you open the newspaper any given day, you see lots of mainstream stories about enterprises adopting blockchain technology, and it's wonderful. Uh, on the flip side to that, you still have a pervasive, in some parts of the world, 
view that anything related to blockchain and anything related to cryptocurrency is also related to drug money uh, and and the sort of dark net. Um, And that is a culture that still apparently hasn't been shaken. Um, We are doing a, a film financing for a movie project. And during the course of arranging the film financing, which we'll be doing on the Ethereum blockchain, we had a request from one of the actors in the film, from their agent, to talk to us about where this money is coming from. And, and sort of the request said, you know, we don't trust cryptocurrency. It's, it's all drug money. And I was sort of like, well, I think that's an outdated worldview of things as you think about the actors and people and use cases that, that public blockchains that Peter mentioned he's a fan of promote. So there are things that we can be doing within our own community to help sort of extinguish, which is already a dying narrative, but is, is still a narrative nonetheless, um, and help advance the sort of public cause and, and sort of virtuous use cases of this technology. I think there's still work to be done, and a lot of that work can be championed by the, the sort of legal sector in blockchain. I don't know if you all are still hearing similar things out when you, when you talk to clients and use cases like that. Um, I must admit, in Australia, we've sort of moved on to some extent. Um, there's less people using Bitcoin and more using Ethereum, um, which people seem to associate less, which is a really good thing, associate less of this sort of dark web drug money type thing. Um, but I think, again, that's a result of kind of a lot of the education piece. But I do agree with you that there's still a huge amount of misinformation out there. People are still very much conflating blockchain with Bitcoin, which is completely wrong. I mean, whilst one was born out of the other, I don't think that you can, I don't think anyone who's actually in the know or understands any aspect of this technology could really say that blockchain is Bitcoin or Bitcoin is blockchain, whilst blockchain is, is sort of a product of Bitcoin and wouldn't be there without it. Um, they are two separate things. I think that's a dangerous distinction to make, actually, because there are plenty of pretty vibrant projects still trying to build on top of the Bitcoin blockchain as a trust anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rootstock's exciting. Um, Blockstack is very exciting. And they're building identity tools that would anchor into the Bitcoin blockchain. And I don't think we should start calling the Bitcoin blockchain something else just because it's being used for an identity purpose in that particular context. I, I, I don't think there's much of a hook for lawyers here personally. I think if you were a lawyer dealing with the internet in the mid nineties, you'd probably feel like you were always being taxed with people's, you know, too soon opinions and or naive opinions about what the technology you were you were working in legal areas related to was it was for porn and it was for you know sketchy people who you know can't can't get up the effort to walk down to the corner and buy a newspaper and read the news like a proper person would and that's just how new technologies are and what changed was everyone started using the internet and it's it's a simple fact that everyone is not yet using Ethereum and everyone is not yet using blockchains, whether they're Bitcoin or other things. And I'm very optimistic. I think people will, but that's the moment that these things get normalized. And that's the moment when people don't care that the early adopters of the technology happen to be criminals, but the early adopters of every technology were either criminals or people on the fringes of society because It's people who are either um, left behind by society, though innocent, um, 
who will adapt new technology or people who don't get the benefits of society because they're engaged in criminal activities who will adopt new technology because they have got you know got high expectations from their tools because they don't have legal recourse to defend them if their tools break so my favorite story in this realm is that um, you know in in the US here we're we're fans some of us are fans of stock car racing of NASCAR and stock cars were first developed like souped up automobiles were first developed by bootleggers who were running pro prohibited alcohol uh, against the prohibition acts uh, in the American South so it would be a you know a car full of whiskey and you needed to outrun the cops so you'd soup it up and then they they you know they got into this whole culture of souping up cars and it was awesome and then they had races and you know, it's a little bit like good old boy southern U.S. stuff going on there, but it was a technological movement, and it ultimately led to some real advances in automotive science. And I think we're seeing the same with, we think we saw the same with the Internet. You know, the early people were misfits and criminals, uh, but then it was the Internet, um, and we're using it right now for this, um, this interview, um, for this conversation. And we're going to see the same thing with these open blockchain networks is the early adopters are going to be pe people who, you know, have strong demands from their technology because they don't have the normal benefits of being in a society that thinks what they're doing is acceptable. Uh, but ultimately the people using it will be everyone and they won't even know they're using it. They'll yeah. just open an app and they'll log in without a password and that'll be magical. And, you know, that's when this stuff works and that's when we don't worry about the PR anymore. Yeah, no. So, so very much agree with with much of what you said there, Peter. And I think one of the things that why I think the legal aspect is particularly important is, and maybe not, maybe less so on the advocacy point, but lawyers are oftentimes the front line between the establishment and the new wave technology, and that they are the gatekeepers that tell the establishment that this new wave technology is okay for them to use. And we see this often in the enterprise context. So um, at Consensus, we work with many enterprise clients, including governments, um, and we have helped set the narrative that this technology is revolutionary in so many ways, and, and sort of the issues that, you know, one might be concerned about are just totally irrelevant to them for the reasons you talked about, right? Like the, the use cases are, are, are far more uh, enriching and far more various than just, you know, the things that people originally associated Bitcoin with. Uh, so I do think, you know, there's a lot of work to do in that narrative, but it, it's work that still needs to be done because for every 10 conversations we have with Fortune 500 companies that are really interested in blockchain, and sometimes it surprises us and they say, you know, we've been building on Ethereum for two years uh, and we had no idea at consensus and we try and keep tabs on these things. Um, but for every 10 you get to, you still get to one or two that say, why would we touch blockchain technology? Why would we touch anything um, involving this? So I, I don't know. Um, if in Australia you're starting to see this sort of enterprise uh, move in and, and whether or not um, in the legal realm, there's a demand on outside counsel to actually advise companies as to their involvement in the technology and the sort of standards for the technology. You know, we've talked a lot about standards. Yeah, that's basically what my role is, actually. Um, we spend most of our time working with both our traditional clients who are banks, government, um, more those conservative, um, if I might say, um, organisations, but they're actually pretty excited by the new technology. Um, and we also kind of work on the other side, working with startups to kind of see where it's going, what's happening, what are the developments. And a lot of this work that we do is actually bridging that gap because I think Australia has the advantage of 
one regulator um, or two if you add in APRA being the banking regulator as well as ASIC, the securities regulator. Um, it's a small country. We have pretty good access to um, the government um, more so than I think you might in the States just because there are less levels. Um, and so I think as a result of that, we've got this sort of facilitative dialogue and that's kind of why I mentioned before there's we've moved on from this Bitcoin is bad, Bitcoin is blockchain here because people are slowly realising, okay, well, blockchain technology is something that is not necessarily Bitcoin. Of course, Bitcoin has that association. But let's look at it more broadly. What are the applications? How do we work with this? And because we can quite literally call up the regulators and say, hey, we want to talk to you about this. Um, and they want to talk to us. And that's how we kind of got this regulatory sandbox, which we can talk to you later, although it's not really of great use for blockchain companies or Bitcoin companies. Um, so Hannah, here's a, yeah. here's a question for you. Um, I'd say the, the one thing that open blockchains still have in common with Bitcoin, which may not be something that policymakers are always comfortable with, is censorship resistance. So the power of these decentralized networks is that there's no intermediary who can unilaterally block a transaction, whether it's a normal money transaction like electronic cash or whether it's a smart contract or whether it's a piece of information traveling over the networks. Um, there's no central intermediary who can stop that from happening. Um, and I think that's something that some policymakers will always be uncomfortable with, whether it's Bitcoin or it's blockchain. And I'm just curious whether this is a conversation that comes up um, in the Australian government, because it's something that people are aware of here in the US even if it's not Bitcoin, there's this understanding that these networks are tools that are very powerful, potentially for illicit uses, and maybe not just drugs. Maybe it's even things like terrorist financing, which is never a fun conversation to have. Yeah, well, I mean, it's actually interesting that you say that because when we're working with these large organizations, that comes up. It's what happens if things go wrong and how can we reverse it? And from a legal standpoint, what's interesting is we've already got things like which are almost immutable registers. So, for instance, land titles here is dependent on what is registered with our land titles office, not whether or not you say you own the place. Um, so we have an element of that. But what we also have is this legal framework that sits behind it that says, well, if there's been some sort of fraudulent activity, that element is rendered null and void, even if the ledger says it. And so what happens is you then, in the current scenario, would strike that out and replace it with what it should be. But in the blockchain scenario, what we've been talking about is saying, okay, fine, the ledger is immutable, but we may need to change that. So we can possibly create a legal fiction so that we actually have an equal and opposite transaction that happens. So whilst the ledger might say something slightly different in law, that's not the case. So I think part of that is also working with the techies on this and the devs to make sure that what they're putting in place, they understand that, well, yes, it's immutable, but there's also this legal framework and we can make the two work together. We just need to be yeah. speaking and work that out. I'd still say that that's an ex-ante correction, basically. Um, and, and I think that makes total sense, especially for the people who would argue that blockchains aren't good for enterprise because of their immutability. It just do a reverse transaction and have a legal fiction that accepts that as a reversal. Um, but what I'm talking about is censorship resistance. It's the fact that if your if you're power as a policymaker was the ability to lean on a centralized intermediary to stop something from happening before it can happen. So prior restraint in the legal context. 
then these networks are not amenable to you wielding power in that way. Um, they're amenable potentially to catching people after the fact, and they might even be more amenable to catching people after the fact because of the transparency of the blockchain. And so I think that's, that's usually the conversation that we end up having when we talk to people involved in law enforcement here in the US or people who are concerned about, say, terrorist financing or anti-money laundering issues here in the US. But it is a trade-off, and it's one that is a, it, it's a sticky subject, I think, because, because regulators have become so comfortable with this assumption that there are eight correspondent banks or 12 correspondent banks, and if they can have good compliance programs and good uh, you know, analytics, they can stop a transaction before it reaches Iran. Uh, and maybe that's just a U.S. perspective. I don't know if it fully is. It's certainly like sanctions law, stopping transactions before they reach Iran is a U.S. perspective, uh, I suppose. But but all sorts of financial crimes we currently police by trying to interdict them before the money flows rather than uh, hold people accountable after it's gone. And that power is going to change, I think, ultimately. I mean, it's interesting that you raise that because when we're looking at these sort of what we call critical infrastructure systems, um, people, there is not much appetite for using these open blockchains. And the reason is exactly as you've said, there needs to be a way to stop something happening before it happens. Um, we have current systems in place. So, for instance, if you're looking at clearing and settlement, we have a clearinghouse and we have um, the settlement mechanisms in part to make it more efficient, but also for stability purposes, to ensure that if something goes wrong, we can actually stop that at the pass. And those principles are actually international. They're not just, you know, the ASX here in Australia wanting to do this because, you know, they feel like it. It's the ASX is doing it because the Reserve Bank tells them to do it because that's what happens at an international level. And that's what we have to ensure that the entire system works. Because if these sorts of systems go down, you can stuff up entire economies. So I think there's a sort of a trade-off there between, yes, we want it to be um, censorship resistant, we want it to be open, we want everyone to access it, and actually saying, well, why do we have these systems in the first place? What are they doing? What's their purpose? And if we have these organisations and they're not just leaning on them for, let's say, to stop a transaction, but if they're, they're there to make sure that everything works properly, then perhaps we should be working in these sort of more controlled environments. I mean, we've seen, I refer to the ASX example, where they're looking at possibly implementing a blockchain solution for their clearing and settlement system. And it's much more limited. And the reason is because they need to ensure financial stability. And that's a private blockchain, a permissioned blockchain. Query what will happen in the future, but it's, it's being done like that so we literally don't blow up our economy. Yeah, the DTCC is working on a similar a similar solution for their. You know, they're a private organization here in the U.S., but they they do settlement clearing, um, and they're working on it. I think it was described as a a blockchain with one node or a consensus of one. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, at least, yeah. a, at least it's an extensible platform that can grow. But and and you you see this from a couple of other solutions. There are some identity solutions that are out there now, and and. Um, also the settlement solutions that you just mentioned that that they start and they don't go full public permissionless chain they start with the federation of a small group of nodes um, so you have to um, in a user context one trust that one node or group of nodes to be trustful which is something that you get 
benefit you get from a public network because the crypto economic incentives that are in place to basically ensure the trust. So we were having this debate last night about federated identity systems and is a federated identity system just changing the trust from um, you just trust Facebook now to in a, a federated identity system, you just trust a trust cartel because they say they're trustful, right? So um, there, there are lots of interesting things that, that you get to, but I agree that, you know, that I think all of these are, are, are very positive steps in the right direction to very powerful technology. And I think no one expected the world to go off the deep end um, and just move ev- all everything over to a public chain at some point in time, specifically as consensus algorithms evolve in, in the public chain from proof of work to proof of stake and other concepts like that that are being explored. So there's a lot of work to be done in all fronts. And I'm just frankly encouraged by all of the efforts that are going on specifically at these sort of institutional levels. And I don't mean to be too down on the closed stuff. I think there's some low hanging fruit and some really good technology that can exploit that um, for systems that should have been better integrated long ago with Paxos in the 1980s or something like that. But uh, that was a really backhanded compliment, wasn't it? (laughs) But um, Matt, this would be a question for you then. So your concern about the public perception of the technology, it's only associated with drug markets. It's only associated with you know illicit financing. It's only associated with whatever uh, criminals. Um, do we run the risk of 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 saying, okay, here's here's the safe one, the real one, with identified nodes and a round robin consensus mechanism, and we can you know have assurance that things won't happen that are bad on this closed permission blockchain. Do we run the risk of, of trumpeting that as a, a legitimate blockchain technology and then policymakers coming around and saying, okay, well, good, we'll, we'll take that. We'll put that in a little jar and shelf and that's, that's wonderful. And now we're going to do everything we can to crush the open networks because they're dangerous and not safe in the way that you've described this nice identified one. I like the words identity. I like the words uh, uh, fully identified, pseudonymous. I don't even know how to pronounce that properly. And anonymous is what I think it really is. And I certainly don't like that. Yeah. So um, one, since we are recording this for posterity, I will say maybe I perhaps overstated my concern a little bit um, on this example. I think it, it is a, a very much a dying narrative, um, but one that we are we the lawyers feel the most questions about regarding whether or not this stuff is legal and associated with bad things. Those those questions don't go to the technologists. Those off, most often go to the lawyers. So I feel like we field most of those. So we, to your point, I think that it, that it is a, an exact risk, and it's a and it's a risk that you see um, businesses trying to capitalize on. Frankly, right? Like there are a lot of people whose solutions they're pushing are the we're the safe solution. You can't trust anybody else. Like this is the solution you have to use because no one else can be trusted. Um, because this public thing is bad for you. It's inherently bad. It's public. Um, when you, when, if you actually get in the weeds and you evaluate the solutions in many instances, the public solution is safer because of the crypto economics, it is more secure. Um, and they're also from, from consensus, our perspective, they're also more developer resources working on it, right? The open source, uh, sort of roots in, in public blockchain, um, add more eyes that go into these things to audit problems. Um, They build more tools 
that will be useful tools to regulators and to governments looking to do things. We're building our own accounting system um, to help track and trace tokens um, and things like that and, and, and allow for proper accounting. I think we're, I would assume we're probably further along than the IRS is in, in figuring out how to do that, right? So um, there are lots of... Um, there are lots of perhaps questions that need to be answered in the public blockchain context. Many of those questions will be answered by technology. None of those questions will be answered by fear. So um, I, I think we need to keep keep driving forward this concept that that there are a lot of great things that can be done and not just settle for, hey, this works for now. Let's do this and not think about the big picture. It's like stopping at the internet, continuing the internet references, is like stopping at the internet at dial-up, right? Like we can all connect to one another, like that's good enough. Like we don't need to do anything more advanced where people can have more bandwidth and, and watch videos or something like that because bad thing might happen if people watch videos. Yeah, or, or like suggesting that the big innovation of wikis was internal company-wide wikis and not Wikipedia, the greatest assemblage of knowledge that's ever happened because nobody had a gatekeeper put on that thing. But it's actually interesting when you're looking at identity and privacy, because, I mean, there's kind of a misconception that everything is private. Well, we mentioned Facebook before. Facebook has your name, your date of birth, where you live, where you went to university. Now, when people are in this internet age, probably where they went to primary school, that's far more information than the government has on you. And that's open and Facebook has that. So I think part of it is also just making people realize that we've moved. Yeah. And, and so like making people realize that, and, and I am like fairly conservative on some of these issues and that I am not the most like out there thinker on identity and, and how the world should work with identity systems. Although my time at consensus has, has pushed me further in that direction, but at the basic principle of it, it's that, yeah, Facebook does all these things. And historically that didn't bother me when I thought about that until I learned that there's actually a better way, right? Like, there's actually a new world and a new technology that enables this to not need to happen, that we can control our own identities in a way that was never before possible. So like, you know, not just taking, you know, the status quo for what the way it will always be, because that's just kind of the way it is and actually pushing things forward to a way that gets you to a positive result. And I think everybody uh, perhaps maybe except the big identity controllers in these and, and, the current era would say that controlling your own identity and your own credentials is a powerful tool. It's actually interesting that you mentioned control because here in Australia, we're looking at changing laws, um, which is quite an amazing thing, moving in the direction of not ownership of information and private information. So your name, your date of birth, health records and all of that to control of it which brings that control back to the individual. So then you'll have the right to actually direct an organization to give you your, your records or to direct them to give it to someone else and get rid of what they've got. Yeah. And that completely changes the, the entire system, which is exactly where we should be going. And it, and it changes it for the better from an enterprise perspective, right? Right now, enterprises, for better or worse, are burdened with identity. They're burdened with documents that they hold for other people which they can only, frankly, in, in this era, get in more trouble than not for having, right? Like you think about the medical profession, you think about HIPAA violations in the US and things like that. You think about all the credit card hacks and all of, all of that type of information. When people control their own identity and that identity is no longer, it no longer sits on some you know, company database somewhere, 
you get to a safer and more secure world, but you also get to a world that still functions because these systems are designed to allow the user to control and exploit their identity when they want to exploit it and not trust that everybody else is doing the right thing with their identity. This is taking us into some pretty interesting water because I just actually had an interview with Christian Lundqvist and Stephen Wilson, who's who are Christians are obviously the the chief architect of Viewport, and uh, Stephen Wilson is an Australian identity expert. Um, he's been in the in the field for twenty two years, and it was amazing to see they had kind of diametrically opposed approaches in that Stephen was a proponent of, feder- of a form of federated identity. And Christian's uh, point of view was that federated identity can be subsumed by self-sovereign identity. And this is kind of this discussion we're having right now about identity is fundamental to how all of these technologies move forward because we need a cryptographic identifier in order to actually use a blockchain. Uh, but also identity and, and as a non-legal professional, you guys can probably, um, you guys can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but identity seems to be at the core of law. I mean, it, it is at some level in that we have ideas of legal personages and we use that in order to determine who a certain you know, polity has jurisdiction over and who they don't or who has made an agreement in a contract or not. There's actually fairly little uh, regulation of that. So, so uh, I'll jump in there, Peter, because I think you're right. I think there's fairly little regulation, but if you look at the systemic system of rules and laws, it's all based around identity, right? If you look at the title system and the land land systems and things like that around the globe, it associates associates a piece of property with a person or entity. So it... At the core of everything in our society is that association of of persons and things. You know who my employer is is important for my payroll withholding, which is important for me paying my taxes. You do a title search. You want to figure out who owns the the property across the street and and see if there's a lien on the house or something like that. You need the address, <clears throat> so that piece of property has its own identity. And in certain jurisdictions, you can get to the owner of that based on the public record, right? So there are all sorts of um, identity systems built into the it's probably unfair to call it the legal system it's probably more of the the the, the societal systems that we deploy in these days of which our laws govern uh but identity is foundational in the way the world works um, and and it will be more foundational in the coming years as we get into ai and 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 more of the the machine and data um world coming to life and, and taking more control and, and having a bigger role in, in sort of the day-to-day lives. Um, these sorts of what I'll call inanimate, ob- inanimate is probably not even correct in, in, in this, this era of technology, but inanimate objects that previously were not persons, right? They need identity as well, right? Data needs identity. All sorts of things need identity now. Um, so identity systems, I think, are crucial. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that, although I think the transition here is moving away from government. The transition here is moving away from the law. So, Hannah, you were talking about data ownership or you know self-sovereign ownership over personally identifiable information and its availability or its usage elsewhere. Um, to me, 
the experiments we've had with robust state control over intellectual properties or ideas are pretty poor. Um, copyright is not a particularly good regime for incentivizing innovation, I don't think. And it's been a disaster to try to enforce the existing norms around copyright, which do purport to give someone a property right to their information. It's only related to creative information to which they are the author, but it is a property right in information. Trying to enforce those laws on the internet ended up being extremely costly, both from a from a you know societal cost standpoint, lawsuits for millions of dollars against moms who were playing music in the background while they were recording their kid, um, and that music was copyrighted, but they posted the video to YouTube, and then they got slapped with statutory damages. The state doesn't have a particularly good handle on how in an information age where everything becomes very fluid, we can retain a legal property right to information. And the idea of um, HIPAA-like regulation of personally identifiable information extending to things beyond just medical records, extending to things like your personal data on Facebook, and having a bureaucracy in place to enforce those laws and norms is not particularly appealing to me. What is appealing to me, and I think what Matt was talking about to some extent with Uport and things like, like this are, are finding new ways of actually creating um, the ability of a person to restrict others from assuming something. And that means rebuilding Facebook such that it doesn't matter if the law doesn't protect your privacy, the cryptography will, because your personal data is encrypted and because there is no Facebook in this context, it's a series of robots running on Ethereum that knit together make a social network. Um, but that is, that is, if anything, a lessening of the legal aspect of identity and a strengthening of um, technologies creating self-sovereign identity, creating the ability for a person to hold something private against all comers, which is the legal idea of property. I, can, I have a right to this against anyone who comes to my land. Cryptography and decentralized networks allow us to have a right to a piece of information against all comers. Um, but that right is not enforced by government. It's a right enforced by um, entropy and the inability of people to actually um, decrypt or the inability of people to actually inject fraud into an open consensus mechanism. I have a, uh, I have a slight challenge to that, Peter, and that yeah. is that when we use systems in, uh, in that are pre uh, currently enshrined in law. Uh, let's take the, uh, the, the example of uh, property conveyance. If you're buying a property and, and buying or selling a property using a, uh, using a conveyance system that uses blockchain, uses blockchain technology and it requires... Why a, does it? Uh, why does it use... Uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I do. And I know I'm being kind of a, a gadfly in this particular conversation, but the property um, records use case for blockchains has never made much sense to me. No. Because at the end of the day, you rely on a centralized authority, the government to enforce property rights to, to land. So people will say like, oh, well, the third world would benefit from better property recording systems. If at the end of the day, the people who are enforcing those registries are corrupt, a better registry is not gonna help, I, I don't think. Uh, so I'll jump in having some experience in this and, and challenge that assumption on, on a couple of grounds. One, if you have the proper blockchain system, right, you lack the ability to create after the fact 
sort of corruption of that data. So you can have sort of this concept, holy grail of an immutable ledger where someone can't just go in and change the ownership of your house to the government because they want your house, right? Like the, the, the all powerful eminent domain uh, cannot happen. It would have to be an open network. It right, would have so to it, be. it would have to be an, an open network. I think progressively getting to an open network, but another, another value we've seen in looking in the land registry context is that that land and title systems, when you actually get into them, are incredibly complicated, even in sort of non-US jurisdictions. Um, there are many actors, um, specifically at a governmental level and, and also at like the actual just you know, making things work level that get involved in, in property and land registry. If you think about utilities that get involved, you think about zoning commissions that get involved. So if you can create a land registry where uh, you can bring multiple actors to the table in a more efficient way, maybe it doesn't um, necessarily upend uh, the concept of, of safety of land registries and, and, and all of that, although I think it does. Um, it's just more efficient. Like you create a central system for a lot of actors that are historically disjointed to come in and operate off of and creates a central ledger for all of these things. So you can go to a registry um, that has information about your house, but also has all your zoning permits and the sign off from all your inspectors and all of that um, all recorded in one place. So that when you come, when it comes time to sell your house, you don't need to march down to city hall and spend the, the next, you know, 34 years of your life trolling public records and talking to the clerk to make sure everything is in order. So you can complete the sale. Right. Um, so there, there are lots of um, potential use cases in the, in the, the property context. I think there are cases, but the question is whether, uh, you know, where they are most needed, um, and this is where they're usually touted, is, um, you know, people cite, um, you know, informal property issues in South America um, as an example of uh, where the government has not recognized people's informal communities and they would benefit from having property recognition so they could have liens on their houses and have capital and all this the government is not going to uh, abdicate power to an open network. And they might abdicate power to a closed network of some sort, a consortium group or something like that. Uh, and yes, there will be efficiencies from that. But there's actually an interesting risk with that is that now you've made corruption potentially very efficient. So, you know, I'm, I'm much more excited about digital identity. Um, I'm much more excited about use cases for blockchain networks that don't rely on, on um, you know, an interface with the physical world, which will usually be mediated in law, because I'm wary of that intersection between the technology and the law. Our concern at Coin Center is primarily to make sure that the law doesn't crush the ability of the technology to grow, not necessarily to build a weld between the two, because that weld could, I think, be detrimental to the development of the technology as much as it could be a, a legitimizing or a useful force. Yeah. One thing I have seen is um, examples of, not implemented examples, but theoretical examples of sort of two of two multi-sig um, smart contracts related to property ownership so that, you know, the government still has to um, um, say, yes, you know, you can sell your property. But on the other hand, the government can't change the ledger without the property owner's permission. So, yeah, it would still involve some government involvement, but the corruption potential is reduced quite a lot by having a token that's required from the property owner yeah. to make any transactions. 
Absolutely. And and so like, Peter, I think you make lots of fair points in there again. And and I think that this is probably a, a three-day discussion of its own rather than just a couple of minutes on a group group chat. And we'd probably need some property experts. Um, but the, you know, the one thing it assumes kind of that you don't get the government coming in as an actor on a public chain, right? Like you can, like that, that, that will happen. And it's going to happen in, in short order where the government comes in as an actor on a public chain, um, certifying their own properties. And, and it may be more efficient for them. It may be more fair for them, whatever, whatever it is, sort of like it was just mentioned, right? Then you can create this sort of, uh, you're bringing actors to the table, but you're giving them the tools they need um, to create more trustful environments and, and frankly, just more efficient. Um, you know, if you think about what it would, uh, the land registry system is, it's just a database, right? It's just a registry, but you're creating a more um, secure, permanent, uh, lasting record of that uh, with the same traditional actors, but you're doing it in a more efficient way. I think actually one of the reasons why people always refer to property is because it is public. So it's really easy to kind of take the existing records and because there are so many different actors involved, I mean, one of the things we haven't actually mentioned yet are mortgages. And so the rights to property is not just the person who owns it or the inspection of the property to make sure that, for instance, in Australia, you have the right fencing around your swimming pool. It's also making sure that, well, if you have a mortgage from your bank, um, has that been properly paid off or properly discharged? Because we've had instances where, for instance, the bank has forgotten or someone's forgotten to go and deregister the mortgage. Now, if you could actually put that onto a blockchain, it's pretty easy to say, okay, well, you're at this stage of your repayments and at this point in time, you have paid off your entire mortgage, you have complete title. Now, that means that what we're doing with the blockchain is removing human error. And that's where it may, becomes much more powerful because whilst, yes, we're dealing with a physical asset, the actual registration of that is actually, as you said, Matt, just a database. So if we're, Sorry. So if, I was just going to say, so if we've created a database that actually works better and brings in the different actors and we're not actually changing the legal state in terms of information or putting information out there that shouldn't be, well, that makes it pretty easy and quite a decent use case to show, well, this might work and it might work in the real world and we can trust it even if it is more open than say in the clearing and settlement example where there is a reason why that will probably need to be a much more closed or single node blockchain. But so, so my only objection is that if, if it's only going to happen with the closed systems because the government wasn't, doesn't want to give up the power it has over things like land title, if it's only going to happen on closed systems, then you can do that. You could do that 20 years ago with an Oracle database. The difficulty is not a technical difficulty. It's getting everybody, all of these different partners. Matt, you mentioned mortgage providers. There's title insurance providers who may not be necessary if the system worked really well. There's the county clerk who keeps the record. It's the network effect or collective action problem of getting them all onto the same system. The system itself could be an Oracle database with multiple users with multiple independent logins and different permissions to edit the Oracle database. That's not a blockchain. Blockchain yeah. decentralizes power. It actually gives power to those multiple users independent of somebody who sets up a centralized database. And to me, the in-between solution of a consortium to do this is not all that different than the Oracle database. Um, so I think the reason why we haven't seen this happen in the land title registry 
use cases because it's a collective action problem, getting everyone to agree on a technical standard to build this consortium network, whether it's just building it using an Oracle di database technology that existed 20 years ago, or whether it's using this new thing called a closed blockchain. Uh, it's yeah. the collective action problem. If it was a technical problem and the technical problem was the real answer, then yes, maybe we'd see a solution emerge now. But the solution that blockchain gives us is not the solution to the problem that they're at, they're looking for. The, prob the, the, the solution that blockchain gives is we don't even need you anymore. We as a group of people or institutions can cooperate together without a central intermediary, without a consortium, without an organization that brings people together and solves a collective action problem, because there is no more collective action problem, because cryptography and economic incentives have solved it, rather than uh, you know an industry association or a consortium solving it. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. I think you you have a very sort of future view of like what the end state looks like for for a property system hopefully uh, but i i do think you will see the collective action problem solved because all of these collective actors are interested in moving to a, a new way of doing this uh, and i i think i am pretty confident you will see no fewer than two jurisdictions that i can think of um move to a system like this or at least deploy a POC of a system like this in 2017. Um, there's a lot of public uh, information about, I think it's Sweden um, that's doing something like this um, or, or running a, a POC. Um, so, so we'll see how the, the systems evolve, but they are, they are certainly in their early days, right? Certainly in their early days. But I, I think that, you know, to, to just to close the point, I think you will see government actors and you will see, it, you know, sort of these, these necessary parties come into these systems. Uh, I think you will see them join this sort of new wave of doing it. And to take this back to the, uh, the um, it's this, this thread's inception, for these systems to work, we need a system of identity that is both legally recognized and uh and compatible with a blockchain ecosystem and so trying to find a way to solve that problem of basically having a public key infrastructure that is uh that is legally recognized is something that certainly uh it, it came up at the standards meeting in uh, in sydney a little while back and uh and I'm wondering if there is any precedent for a system like this being deployed elsewhere. Estonia, actually, obviously. I mean, well, I was actually about to mention that Estonia actually already has a system in place. It's not fully blockchain, but it is a matter of the government say, issuing digital identity cards, which give people the rights to control who has what information from them and to see when people access information about them. Now, one of the biggest barriers to that in other jurisdictions is the fact that the government then has all of that information. So in Australia, we've tried to introduce the Australia card several times, which, but people don't trust the government. They don't like the idea that the government here has all of that information to hand. So I think you've got, and to go back to the Facebook point, but there are organisations out there that do have that information that we're comfortable giving it to. So you kind of have these two competing um, understandings in the on the one hand you don't want someone who arguably is relatively sensible um if you're in a country like australia um and on the other hand you've got a private enterprise that has all that information 
yet you won't give that to another organization. So a lot of this identity discussion is actually about public perception um, and who has that information. Now, of course, we all want to be able to have the rights to our own information, our own identity, and be able to control that with possibly public key infrastructure. But again, it's about setting up a system where, for instance, you can't access that information um, if you don't have the, resp- the right to access it. Or, for instance, you, don't have a, you have a way to access it if you lose your password. So it actually gets into practical implications as well when you're dealing with a self-sovereign identity, whereas in the other way you've got a centralised um, ident- system of identity, you've got the issue of, well, who has that information, who has the ac- right to access it, and how do we control that? So you've kind of got two competing um, ideals. I'll also say that, that at least here in the U.S. and in most common law countries, um, you can enter a legally binding contract with nothing more than a digital signature. And the digital signature that you create will be entered into evidence if there's ever a contractual dispute about something, about whether you were the person who entered into that contract or not, along with any other evidence that may be pertinent to establishing your state of mind and the person who you were contracting with, their state of mind, in order to form clear evidence of this meeting of the minds. Um, So there is no need, actually, for government to officially recognize a particular technological standard of identification. In fact, the idea of that happening is kind of frightening to me, because what if they pick the wrong standard? What we want are technology agnostic or technology neutral laws about evidence and about establishing a person's identity and when it should be granted credence that don't mention technical standards, because if they mention technical standards, they'll be wrong in 10 years, inevitably. And in the U.S., we actually already have those technology agnostic laws. There are things like um, UIDA and eSign, um, and they're good laws, actually. They, they create a very technology-neutral framework that allow people to enter into binding agreements um, without uh, necessarily being in person, doing it electronically over different means and methods, wires, digital signatures, anything that works. Um, There have been a couple of um, states who have, uh, Arizona passed a law that tried to update the Electronic Signatures Act, basically, in that state to make sure that blockchains were included as things that could be legally binding sources of identity information or or smart contracting or binding contractual information. And I think they're really misguided, actually, because the problem is they tried to define blockchain in that statute. And tried to in order to say a blockchain will be a legally binding smart contract, or evidence of a smart contract on a blockchain will be legally binding as a contract. But then, what if they define blockchain badly, which I actually think they did? And then a lawyer comes along and says, "Oh, you entered into a smart contract on this other thing that doesn't fit our definition of blockchain. This might not be legally binding." And then the smarter lawyer comes back in and says, "No, wait a minute. All of this is legally binding." because we have background law that doesn't look for a particular technological standard to establish a contracting partner or party's identity. But now this whole other thing has come in and confused people by thinking that there is only this minimum thing that it needs to comply with, like this specific definition of a blockchain and not a broad technological standard. So again, I, I hate to be the, the killjoy in this conversation, but I actually don't think government has any business um, getting involved with with um, the particular technologies for identity standards. Their business is creating technology agnostic laws that the technologies can fit into if they provide an identity solution. 
Yeah, and I and I I, I agree with with most of that, and I think you know just to po- provide one flip side to evidence, it's been a while since I looked at it, but the proposed amendments in Delaware regarding the the corporate law, I think they did a good job, if I'm recalling correctly, of being technology agnostic and defining the outcome, but not necessarily the technology that gets you there. And I think if you're a regulator, that's what you need to look for. I think like, if you look at, I don't remember the, the characteristics offhand, there are three or four, maybe a couple more, uh, but one of them was like, you know, hey, whatever technology you're using needs to be able to export in reasonable time to paper human readable format for your share registry or whatever it is, right? That doesn't focus on what the current state of the thing is. It just focuses on an outcome or, or an attribute that it that it needs to be able to provide so that the government can honor it or respect it. Um, so I, I think, yeah, there is a need for smart regulation. I am I am equally scared of rust regulation. Someone, people ask me on a, on a sort of biweekly basis to define the, the phrase smart contract. Um, and I'm always hesitant to do it because um, I think it's a bad phrase and I also don't know what it's going to mean in six months, right? Um, some people have said, had really eloquent definitions um, that I've heard and I've been like, yep, that's a smart contract, but I don't know that's how I'm going to feel in six months from now. And we all know how long it takes to pass laws and amend laws and things like that. So I'd rather um, tread a little bit lightly. It's interesting that you say, we're talking here about passing laws, but I think, Peter, as you alluded to, we're particularly in the US and Australia and New Zealand and the UK dealing with common law jurisdictions. And in the common law, a contract is real, a written contract is literally just evidence of the agreement between the parties. So if you've got all those other elements of the contract there and you're able to establish who the parties are, the fact that someone's electronic signature is completely different to what the agreement should have been. Well, we have laws in place to make sure that, well, that signature wasn't quite right because that wasn't the agreement. And so ultimately, uh, we also have the same system which can approve electronic signatures. So in the event that someone says, oh, well, the signature was only electronic, that doesn't act, that's not actually enforceable, you can actually come in and say, well, no, 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 that's not the case. There was clearly an agreement. There was a meeting of minds between the parties. The fact that it wasn't pen to paper in a wet signature and it was someone clicking yes on a computer that might also be enforceable. In fact, if parties agreed to it and there's evidence of that, it probably is. And you don't necessarily need to change the law to make that enforceable. I think, Matt, you're right. We do need to adjust things, for instance, in corporations law. And similarly, in Australia, um, you can have share registers that are held electronically, provided they are also um, renderable in human-readable form. Um, And we're actually switching it so that it doesn't need to be in paper form. It just needs to be in human-readable form. But that's kind of kind of gold standard which we're working towards but what we're seeing is there are principles already here which we can use that we don't need to change we just maybe need to tweak things around the edges to make it work in this new digital environment and making sure it is tech neutral is exactly the way to go so i I will respond and hopefully tie out what i am now seeing is the sort of more clear version of an earlier conversation we were having so i i think I think you're right. I think in some instances you don't need to you 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 actually legitimately don't need to go the full mile to change things. But going back to my earlier point about our our role as legal professional professionals and our interaction with enterprise, enterprise wants certainty and outcome. 
They don't want to say, hey, I can rely on common law to maybe make the argument that whatever I'm doing is actually enforceable and is actually valid. They want to know, right? And they want to know because when they shift technologies, it's a major investment. So when you look at the context of enterprise proof of concepts and things like that, they say, great, a global payments app with instantaneous settlement is wonderful. But how do I know that the contracts that are taking place on here are actually enforceable, right? In all of these jurisdictions, they don't want to, they won't, they, it's my assumption that they won't want to presume or they won't rely on a presumption. If you're the general counsel of a major bank, you're not going to say, great, everybody, let's shift our, 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 our global settlements platform because we think we can make an argument in common law, right? So I, I think that's where you see the concern um, and the need for mainstream, I don't want to call it regulation because it's the wrong word, but just mainstream consensus, let's use a blockchain term, consensus that, um, hey, you know, um, a cross-border settlements platform and the contracts that are contained therein and smart contracts are enforceable, right? And getting to the, that, that confidence in an outcome, um, which people don't want to need, they don't want to rely on an after-the-fact judgment there. Yeah, I, I think that's actually really interesting because we're sort of getting to that consensus here in Australia. Um, of course, as you say, it is much, much better to have it sort of signed, sealed and delivered and getting into deeds. It's a completely different story. But there is actually emerging a consensus here that electronic signatures are valid, um, which I guess is another example of Australia taking a slightly different view to the states. Um, yeah. and, 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 I, I think there's... there's I don't think that's a particularly um, fraught area in the states either. Yeah, no, and and we're, I, I'm always shocked whenever I encounter a jurisdiction that doesn't accept electronic signatures. I think the the reasons to doubt the enforceability of of certain of of these complex arrangements are go beyond whether or not you know the signature is valid. Uh, and there there are lots of things that you you would need to think about, um, and then you assuming you have something valid, right? Then you get into sort of jurisdictional issues, uh, application of law issues. You get into all of these things that you traditionally saw via contracts in which astute lawyers and technologists will learn to solve with small, smart contracts as well. Um, so so it's, I think it's more than just e-sign. I don't want to just, you know, pigeon into to e-sign. I think there are lots of things to solve with. Just generally, it goes back to the sort of Bitcoin thing, right? Like just generally getting people comfortable, getting the old guard and institutional players comfortable that, hey, We've built this new interesting technology and we can actually use it and it will give us the outcomes we're saying it will give us, not just technologically, but also legally. I mean, one, one thing that would be really cool is if we have an open network for uh, public key infrastructure, so basically something like Uport or Blockstack, where anybody can attest that they are the person behind a particular public-private key pair, um, sign statements from that, um, that basically blockchain address, if we can call it that. And then other people can make attestations about that person. So Bank of America says about this person who can sign with this digital signature, this person has a bank account. Um, the, the credit rating agency can say this person has this credit score and this person can take these attestations using an open network and share them in a tokenized form uh, selectively to prove say to prove to the bartender I'm over 18 without handing the bartender a driver's license that has all this other additional information on it because why should the bartender know where I live? I'm not comfortable with that. Um, that'd be great. One of the coolest things you could see in that world as far as government integration is not a change in the laws. It's when the Department of Motor Vehicles says, oh, 
well, we'll make an attestation about this person who's accumulated this federal ID, federated identity on this system that they can drive. And then you'll get your DMV attestation at, at the place where you can digitally sign, just like you'll get your credit score attestation, just like you'll get your diploma attestation. And then hopefully, uh, you know, if this is a user sovereign type system, which Uport or Blockstack would probably be, hopefully there's a good way to make sure that if I ever lose my device, um, there's some multi-sig arrangement that allows me to reprovision a new device with all of those attestations so someone can't go around pretending to be, you know, a graduate of, you know, a law school <laughs> or, or any number of other things that I attest about myself. Um, there's a catch here though, and that is the potential uh, liability that comes with attesting to a uh, something about a, a for, uh, an identity which you don't control the actions of. Say, for example, a bank makes an attestation about uh, yourself, Peter, and then you go off to another um, another bank, or you go and you use that attestation in some fraudulent way that a uh, that get potentially gives someone down the line or the victim of that fraud the ability to not to suggest that you would ever commit fraud <laughs> the ability to uh potentially sue the attesting uh the attesting bank right and i use banks as examples because they're so notoriously risk averse and um and this is i think i mean the the general impression that i've got from speaking to people about um, identity and uh, particularly uh, KYC is that banks just will never play ball with federated identity because of the potential legal risks. KYC is a different area. Now in the, in the normal, say like consumer identity, you know, context that that would be one thing and, you know, limitations of liability, indemnification, all kinds of things could be written into the contract that the bank enters into when it gives you the attestation token. And that could be pretty watertight, I think. Um, you know, the, those kinds of risks can be hedged, just like people weren't comfortable putting their credit card number over the internet in order to do e-commerce, but they gladly read it over the phone back in the 90s. Those things weren't that different, and we'll learn that these things aren't that different in these new contexts. KYC information has to do with de-risking, and it just has to do with really the rather sad state of the world when it comes to banking um, banking relationships and the, their availability for, for persons because banks are extremely risk averse and they're risk averse because they're getting a lot of pressure from their regulators to never process a transaction that could lead to terrorist financing. And that's, that's, that's such a, a, a black swan, uh, extremely unlikely, but extremely costly outcome that they take amazing pains to prevent that from happening. They're extremely cautious with who they decide to open accounts for, who they decide to be a correspondent bank for. So you might have seen the news about Wells Fargo recently, basically blocking um, uh, correspondent banking transactions from a bank in, I believe it was Hong Kong, that was working with Tether, which was working with Bitfinex. And that's three steps, four steps removed. The bank wants to know every customer down the line, not just the correspondent banking's counterparty, but their customer and their customer's customer. And this is why it's very difficult, for example, for a Bitcoin exchange to get banking relationships. Because at the end of the day, the bank's gonna wanna know, okay, you're setting up an account for Peter, that's cool. Who can Peter pay when they use Bitcoin? 
And the answer is anyone who can generate a public address and a QR code. But I think that we're actually, you're saying then that this international infrastructure that we have to protect us from financing terrorism is bad. Now, well, I'm saying it's, it's miscalibrated. So I think then what you can actually do is then say, well, it's miscalibrated as it currently stands. So how do we recalibrate it? Mm-hmm. And one of the things we're doing in Australia, actually, is reviewing our Anti-Money Laundering Counterterrorism Financing Act and working out, well, how can we actually bring these sorts of organisations, in particular um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency exchanges, into the current system such that there aren't these issues so that a bank, they can get bank accounts, they can operate legitimately. Because what we've seen, actually, is the exchanges here want that. They want to be legitimate businesses. It's very difficult if you can't open a bank account. So when you actually sit down and work with the regulators and work out, well, what's the best way to do this? If you bring them under the umbrella, then you eliminate the problem. Sometimes it's better to not say, no, this is wrong, we can't operate, but to actually, well, say, well, what are the issues? How do we work through them? And we're actually finding here that we're not at loggerheads and we've got a very facilitative approach. And it's looking like there will be a draft legislation that comes out later on this year or early next year to actually facilitate that, which is a brilliant step forward. And it's exactly what I think we should, where we should be going. It'd be good if Australia could lead the way with that, because in the US, that miscalibration is having real costs, I think. So there were, this is an interesting fact. So cryptocurrency exchanges aside, just US-based nonprofits who have staff or efforts underway overseas, two-thirds of them have had trouble getting a banking relationship or having transactions censored by their banks. And 42% have actually had to resort to putting cash in a bag and giving it to an employee to get on a plane to travel overseas. 42% of nonprofits in the US have had to resort to that. That's insane. We have a serious problem with de-risking and the risks are real. There is terrorism in the world, and it does get financed through international wire transfers. It's financed in cash, too. But if we can't get aid to Syria, we've got a more compounded problem because of the efforts of de-risking. And this is the same problem that the marijuana industry has here in the U.S. because they operate in a gray area. It's the same problem that these nonprofits have. It's the same problem that cryptocurrency exchanges have. Um, It's a real problem, though. And so hopefully Australia will be a path, uh, a, a path forger here because uh, I think things do need to change. I, I think that's what all of this innovation is about, right? Like it's about figuring out a better way. How do you figure out a better way? Some of it's happening on the private side with proposed solutions. Some of it's happening at um, the sort of governmental level. It, it sounds like I don't know much about what Australia is trying to do, but some of it's happening at sort of the, the state level. We're saying like, hey, we recognize there's a better way to do this and we're going to lead the charge. So um, I, I am personally excited because you're seeing a push on both fronts. Um, it has not resulted in a clash yet, um, though presumably it may at some point in time with private solutions clashing with what governments will tolerate. Uh, but but we will we will start to see that break down over time. But the only way we're going to get there is by being innovative and actually developing this technology. That's why I love working at Consensus. So I love talking to you all and and just following what's going on and the 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 now seemingly hundreds of similar technologies that are out there and and more coming to light every day with new ideas, new developer talent um, focusing on solving some of these problems for the world. 
Hey, well, that sounds like a pretty good wrap. Is there anything else we want to uh, we want to discuss? No, everyone's pretty happy. Well, the next question is, um, what do we want to? What what is outstanding, and, and what do you think is worth pursuing next time? Because in a couple of weeks, I figure I'll set up another. Uh, I'll invite everyone again. We'll see who we get. And, um, and we can potentially drill deeper into some uh, of these specific uh, subjects that we've discussed. I know we've covered so much ground in this conversation. Um, one of the things that I think is worth discussing is what Peter mentioned right at the beginning is ICOs and token sales. Um, because we're seeing that, I mean, it's obviously this phenomenon that's growing all around the world. Um, and... The treatment, I think, in the US is probably quite different to the treatment in Australia or potential treatment. Um, and I think it would be interesting to kind of drill down into what's going on, how that might look, what the regulators, what view the regulators may or may not take, and kind of how it's going to evolve. Because it's, I think that's going to be the next big sort of legal thing after the kind of cryptocurrency discussions that we've been having. Yeah, so I'd be lying if I didn't say I, I threw out my idea for a conversation before someone could throw out that idea. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't want to speak for Peter, but I know we've collaborated a little bit on, on the subject in the past, and I, I think it is a very interesting and worthwhile subject. I do feel like it has a, a really big magnifying glass on it, and people are perhaps not seeing the forest through the trees if they're just focusing on the concept of tokens and ICOs or ITOs or whatever people want to call them. Um, so it, it it is certainly a topic that we can talk at length for, and I'm happy to do so. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's, uh, we've got some, something of a consensus there. Liesl? Yeah, I agree. It's something that I've definitely wanted to learn more about. So, um, yeah, and it would be interesting to look into maybe a New Zealand angle on that as well, because there's not really a lot going on here at all in that area <laughs> or others. So, um, yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a, dig into the into the research before the next conversation and see what I can bring up. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and there, there are no shortage of outspoken, I don't want to call them Twitter trolls, but there's no shortage of outspoken voices. Do you want to bring Preston on? They <laughs> <laughs> uh, just have marmots. So he'll just yeah. be surrounded by furry so, animals. So, we won't have so, any conversation. <laughs> someone sent me to a, a, a marmot coin tweet or something like that. Uh, no, everybody, everybody's entitled to their own view on this. Um, I, I think, you know, like all things, nobody who screams in absolutes is going to be right. Um, there are varying shades of acceptable and unacceptable. And, and I think having a responsible discussion about the state of the ecosystem is important, specifically on the subject. Yeah, I, I think especially given that there's a real opportunity here for there to be something new that isn't a security, that is actually a fair and equitable way to distribute the value of an infrastructure to its users and to raise money for the open source development of that infrastructure. That's radically different than raising money for your corporation by giving people equity rights. Um, and it's an amazing model that could make open source development significantly more viable than it has been where it's currently, you know, you can only make money off of it by having a service package combined with your open source software, like the Red Hat, Red Hat, Red Hat model or something like that. Um, and it's important to tell that story because the story that the SEC or a security regulator will hear will not always be that story. It'll be the scam coin that raised a million dollars and then they 
ran away with the money. All right. Well, we may as well conclude it there. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for joining me, guys. It's a pity uh, Alex had to go like right at the start, so we didn't get to hear too much from her. But um, and I actually would have liked to hear more from Alex about um, about engaging with uh, with the New Zealand government and whether the uh, whether the uh, kind of the criminal view of uh, or the this this old view of cryptocurrency might be one of the stumbling blocks that we're experiencing here we can raise that up next time um but yeah so in a couple of weeks uh let's reconvene i'll try and have this published as soon as possible maybe maybe even tomorrow great great thank you very much guys take it easy guys this has been the ether review Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.